Welcome to the D-Spot Podcast. Dr. Dana McNeil is a licensed marriage and family therapist who specializes in working with couples using the Gottman Method. Her evidence-based practice provides support for the wide range of relationship issues that modern couples face. By using her open, affirming, and outside-of-the-box thinking, Dr. Dana is able to approach her work with couples by bringing both insights and tools that reflect the realities of today's complicated relationships. Dr. Dana features guests on her podcast that include a unique array of celebrities, CEOs, influencers, and everyday folks who are all working on navigating new conversations about how society views what goes into a successful relationship. And now, here's your host, Dr. Dana McNeil. Hello, and welcome to the D-Spot Podcast. I'm Dr. Dana McNeil, and I'm your host for a podcast that is all about relationships and the people in them. Our goal in this show is to change the conversation about going to couples therapy and explore what defines a healthy relationship. Today, I am incredibly honored to be in conversation with Joe Wynn. Joe is a clinical social worker. He's an ASEX certified sex therapist, which we'll talk about in case you don't know what that is. He's a certified supervisor of sex therapy. That means he's important. He completed his MSW at Boston University School of Social Work in 1995 and has maintained a private practice since 2003. Joe has worked with a variety of individuals and couples addressing domestic violence, sexual assault and abuse, substance use, abuse, and end-of-life issues. He's done it all. Joe's clinical interests are centered in working with LGBTQIA relationships, consensual non-monogamy, and the BDSM and kink community, which we can talk about more. He does that bringing the skills of scene negotiation and consent into general sex and couples therapy. Joe is also a member of the training faculty with the South Shore Sexual Health Center in Quincy, Massachusetts. You'll hear his cool accent in just a second, which is an ASEX-approved training program for clinicians pursuing sex therapy certification, which is different than being a couples therapist, so we can also chat about that. Joe has also lectured nationally and internationally on topics such as problematic sexual behavior, applying queer theory and anti-racist practice in psychotherapy, and making psychotherapy more accountable to LGBTQIA clients and other marginalized communities. In addition, as if that wasn't enough, Joe is a trainer, supervisor, and he also provides consultations to organizations throughout New England. Hello, Joe. Hi, Dana. How are you? I'm so excited. I just recently heard you for the probably my fifth or sixth time at the couples conference. A couple, was it a couple of weeks ago, a week or so ago? And yeah, it's yeah. sort of like the end all be all of couples conferences. So to be speaking at that, you really have to know your business. And Joe really does. So tell us about the conference that you just spoke at. Well, um, I just spoke at the couples conference, as you had mentioned, Dana, and I was invited to speak there. This is, I think, the third time I've spoken there. Yep, I think um, so. I think so. I am. Um, I was a member of the advanced training program of the developmental model via the Couples Institute with Ellen Bader and Pete Pearson. And had been studying there for a while. And Ellen invited me primarily because I started to say to Ellen, you know, I really love this model. It's what I refer to as stackable. You can build on it and you can bring your own ideas to it. And differentiation is really important to me. As a sex therapist, I really love David Schnarch's work. And I said, you know, Ellen, this is great, but the model is really straight. 
Mm. And it's like most couples therapy models, you know, the, that's one of the ways in which power seeps into this work. We can talk about that in a bit. I said, I would like your permission to queer it up. And I would like your permission to add critical race theory and crip theory and queer theory so that when we're talking about developmental processes within that model, we're also recognizing that black and brown folks, folks with disabilities, queer folks, trans folks, um, newcomers to this country are going to have developmental processes that most heterosexual, white, straight identifying clinicians have no idea about. So. I brought that to the conference. Um, I did a talk, a keynote on working um, with erotic transference and counter-transference to deepen therapy, both in psychotherapy and couples work, as well as in supervision. And then um, I was part of a table, a panel talking about race, sex, gender, and power. So this year there was there was a big push to to get people talking about moving out of their comfort zone and and into recognizing how complex relational therapy is. And one of the things I like most about you is that you can take these very difficult, multi-layered subjects and break them down for the lay person, right? Sure. And so since most of those who are listening to us are probably lay people, I want to give like a little background or a little texture that might set up this conversation in a nice way. So when we think about couples therapy as an art, it's been with us, what, 40, 50 years, right? Tops, maybe mm -hmm. a little bit. I mean, at least like identifying as it. Mm -hmm. And so when we think about it, it had its origins working with clients that identified as being opposite sex partners, right? Just to kind of break it down for those of us that are listening. And so the issues that were happening in those relationships yeah. where let's avoid getting divorced, let's, you know, be good co-parents, let's keep our sex life alive, you know, how am I going to be a good domestic partner? All yeah. the things. So then fast forward, we suddenly got out of our heads and decided that, you know, opposite sex partners can get married as well. Hello, celebration. We're using the same theory as a couples therapist to apply to clients that have very different issues going on in their lives. What they show up with in our offices is not what opposite sex partners are having. And I'm just saying these phrases because it's easier because clients may be listening to us being like, tell me about all these initials, Joe, I don't understand. So just like, that's kind of the way I, I try to introduce it to people that are not thinking about the things the way that you and I are thinking about them, right? It's like, it's a different world. And you're saying, here's this one size fits all, go ahead and put it on. I'm sorry if this sweater's uncomfortable for you, just put the buttons on as best you can. Exactly, exactly. And, and, you know, that makes so much sense, because when we, we recognize, you know, how we sort of pigeonhole people into boxes, you know, queer, marginalized people, black and brown people have been put into boxes that they don't fit in. We, we don't belong in boxes any more than anyone else does. So to get to your point, you know, when we talk about LGBTQIA+, what we're talking about a lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, intersex, and asexual people, the plus represents the ever-expanding relationships that people are exploring and really starting to, to ask questions about in relationship to their sexuality, their gender identity. And some folks say, I don't fit on that binary. I don't feel male. I don't feel female. And to be put into those boxes is, is really limiting. 
because that's for my comfort as the person speaking it, not as the person receiving it, right? Because for people who are listening and they're like, oh my God, all the initials, I can't keep track of all the initials. It's like, but that should be freeing to you. What that means is there's a plus. So whoever you are today, this hour, this minute, tomorrow, next year, there's space for you. You don't have to like choose, well, I don't seem to seem to fit in any of these three. So now this life just sucks versus it being intimidating. It should be freeing. Yes. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that's one of the reasons it becomes so important, you know, for, for people to be able to look at this, because even when folks come into to therapy, Dana, you know, into relational therapy or couples therapy, however, we're framing that, what becomes important is that they may have aspects of their own identity that they don't even realize or that they don't feel they can bring into the room or that they're ashamed to bring into the room or they're waiting for us as experts to to bring into the room and if we as clinicians don't have the chutzpah or the courage to recognize that the person sitting in front of us is so much more than the collection of labels we want to slap on them then we're actually hurting that relationship Because what we're saying is we can't connect with you or I can't provide you empathy if you don't fit into a format that I can validate. Absolutely. 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 And I think that's one of the things that it can be so damaging for relationships that are really on the brink or struggling because part of our work is to help them see each other, to help them see the potential in the relationship. But if we can't see who they are or we as clinicians who hold a lot of power in the room, don't create space for them to really show up in all of the beautiful flavors and colors that they are, then what we're actually doing is following a manual rather than creating an experience. I, this is awesome. I'm loving this. So I'm going to go back to your bio because there's all kinds of cool questions that we can ask about your bio. If I have somebody that's listening to me and they're like, so Joe has in his bio applying queer theory. Tell me, Joe, what is queer theory? Queer theory, like critical race theory, like crypt theory. Let's just get it all in there together. These are models of power analysis And what that means is how the culture we live in, queer theory, crypt theory, critical race theory explores the ways in which power is created and maintained to support the interests of dominant cultural groups, primarily white, male, heterosexual, able-bodied, cisgendered, wealthy, Christian, and how those power struggles or how those power dynamics are maintained in economics, social policy, medicine, psychotherapy, um, to the detriment of hearing the voices, needs, and experiences of marginalized people. So in queer theory, clearly, it's people who identify as not heterosexual, transgender, lesbian, gay, bisexual, intersex, asexual, Critical race theory, we're talking about folks of color, um, black and brown people, people from different parts of the world, as well as queer, BIPOC, or black indigenous people of color. And crypt theory is a particular model of power analysis that was developed by McGraw, several other researchers that said, hey, how is it that people with disabilities, whether cognitive, physical, how is it that we erase them? 
And all of these models look at the ways in which economics and public policy and healthcare is actually used to silence these voices from being seen. So that is critical theory in a broad stroke. Great introduction, because again, we're not you. If you can, if you're watching this, the stacks of books behind him, that's like light reading for Joe. So, Thank you. okay. So part of this is if we're, you know, taking this broad theory and part of your bio is let's make psychotherapy accountable to these mm -hmm. groups. How yep. does one do it? If I identify with one of these groups or a plus group, and I'm looking for a competent relationship therapist. Yes. How do I be my own advocate? I'm assuming that's part of how I'm going to make psychotherapy accountable, or is or is it during the process, or is it all of it? Tell someone listening how you would do that. Sure. So for folks that are listening, and, and to share this with you, Danny, you've heard me speak about this, um, you cannot separate the clinical from the political. You absolutely can't. The minute you try to separate those out, what you're doing is you're putting people back into boxes, generally for the comfort of the clinician. So as a white, gay, cisgender man who has a boatload of experience behind me, who's been married, partnered for 33 years, who's helped to raise three kids, all of these identities come into the room. So when I sit with someone who is Black or Brown or Latinx or Asian or has a disability um, or has a uh, sexual orientation different from mine, I bring it into the room. Hey, Mark, I'm really curious, before we get going here, what's it like for you to sit with a white male clinician? I know for a lot of Black folks or Latino folks or whatever group we're talking about, the experience of sitting with a white professional is, is just sort of like the paint on the walls. You don't even know it. Mm. You don't even know it's there. But I'm curious what it's like for you to sit with me right now. Are there any fears or concerns that I can address? Are there concerns that I might not be able to understand your experience? The same thing when I'm sitting with someone who's transgender or when I'm sitting with a lesbian couple, even though I identify as queer and gay, it's still important to check in about the gender dynamic, the power dynamic there. Hey, um, Liz and Marsha, what's it like to sit here with um, a gay man? Now, I know your family. I know that, you know, you're in a couple, but just the same, I'm still a penis owner. And for a lot of women, being a penis owner can can really be a big deal. Is it's intimidating or no. that you won't understand. If I start talking about my period, you're going to yes. be like, yes, yes. Or am I going to have to educate you about how we have sex or worse? Do I have to read between the lines because you're making assumptions about how women celebrate their bodies and pleasure together? So bringing this stuff into the room really begins to open up a lot of trust. And we know from the research, right, that when white clinicians in particular, or when straight clinicians in particular, really bring into the room difference, and we name it, that it creates a sense of, oh, that's someone who's not afraid to bring up difficult topics. And you know, as well as I do, relational or couples therapy, however you frame it, um, you're really asking people to step into a great deal of vulnerability and honesty. And if we as clinicians can't do that, or we pretend it's not there, or we fall into that really disturbing idea of I'm colorblind, or I see everyone as equal, then we're really missing out huge components of this person's experience and life. And that's really what these critical theories want to do, is bring them into the room so that the ubiquitousness of our own 
privileges don't overshadow the needs of the people that we're sitting with. I love that. I also love that there feels like there'd be a twofer that I'm also admitting that I'm a human in the room. That's right. And so if I'm making a recommendation as a relationship therapist, right, because you're coming to me also for some tools, if I acknowledge that I have my own stuff that I have to work through or that I'm aware of how this is impacting you or that it yes. might be received from a place that's, well, look at you, you know, you, you have your own things you have to, maybe it even enhances the recommendations that we make as a relationship therapist. Absolutely, absolutely. And what's so powerful about that, particularly for folks who might be listening, who are considering going to relational therapy, for folks that are in relational therapy, to be able to bring to their therapist and say, why have you never addressed race with us? Mm. We never talked about the fact that we're a gay couple and, and you're a, a heterosexual, you know, clinician. Or why are we not talking about what just happened with the overturn of, of Roe v. Wade? Why are we not talking about what it's like to be marginalized as someone who's trans, who has an advanced degree, but I can't get a job because of my relationship to my, why is that not relevant to my therapy? Mm. So it brings us into the room around vulnerability. It also helps when the clinician invites the clients or the partners in the room to really step into difficult relationships or difficult moments, it gives them the ability to say, hey, wait a second, Joe disclosed stuff to me and asked me questions I don't hear every day. So if this dude can bring that shit into the room, maybe I can show up too. Side note, not about relationship therapy, but are you, what's your sense of why clinicians are not doing it? So let's say that we have a clinician that's self-aware and obviously, hopefully they should not be therapists if they don't, but they care about their client experience. Mm -hmm. Do you think that they're intimidated to share what they don't know and that that's going to somehow minimize their value in their client's eyes about the things that they do know? You know, it's a complex question. So what I would say, Dana, is, and, and thank you for asking that question. We're just going to paint with a broad brush here. One of the things that I would say is, at least on the East Coast, I don't know. Well, actually, I know a little bit about training on the West Coast because I work with folks from the... You're more uh, direct on the East Coast than we West Coasters are. Yeah, we're also still very much dominated by psychoanalysis and the medical model. This is one of the things that comes up. Why don't clinicians ask this? I think that clinicians don't ask this because we're not trained. We're trained as if, hey, here's a class on racism. Okay, you've taken the class, as opposed to really diving deep into our privilege. I also think that as clinicians, we learn not to be offensive. All right. Now, there's a difference between being offensive and being direct. The other part that I think comes into this is that most clinicians are folks who played the role of family therapist in their own family. All right. I had a supervisor who shared with me once that psychotherapists and family therapists are people that need therapy 40 hours a week. So one of the things that I think happens is if we're not supervised to step out of our discomfort, mm. then we make assumptions about this isn't relevant. And that's actually a, a power dynamic. If I'm making the assumption that talking about your race, your class, 
your sexual orientation, your gender identity, your um, asexuality, and I decide that's not important. I am no longer accountable to you. I am making a decision that is in actuality serving my best needs to remain comfortable rather than bringing into the room the discomfort of bearing witness to your lived experience because as someone who is privileged, I get to be invisible to that reality. And as such, I get to dictate where the therapy goes, keeping me in the position of the expert. Love. I'm controlling the narrative about what's important for us to discuss in your relationship. And I get to leave the uncomfortable yes. parts out for me, but I'm yes. happy to tell you the uncomfortable parts that you should be working on. Exactly, exactly. And that is about needing to do a power analysis. So you've heard me talk about Harry Aponte's work around the person of the therapist, which is just a really sophisticated way to say, you got to show up. Yeah. And you've heard me talk about the sexological worldview, meaning you really have to take a look at your values. Where did you learn that being heterosexual was the norm? It's the way that white folks make the assumption that being white is normal. So this is why this stuff is important. And this is why I think clinicians avoid it, mm -hmm. because we have forgotten how in many ways to recognize that it is within conflict that is respectful and, and really helps the relationship grow that people begin to change. And when we model avoidance, we're sending two contradictory messages simultaneously, which replicates the family of origin of many of the folks that are coming in to see us. Wow. This is, from my perspective, how we hold psychotherapy accountable to ourselves and the people we work with. Mind-blowing. Okay. Yeah. How? Okay. I like that idea and that we have to hold our our therapists accountable. And we as clinicians have to do it in our community and our clients have to do it with us. And that is part of where they get their power, like holding that healthy boundary in session and, and practicing with us, right? If you're hoping to do it out in the world, where safer is it than doing it in your therapist's office? Psychotherapy is, is a lab. This is why, you know, I really, when I, I teach and supervise, you know, I'll say to folks, listen, um, initially the first month of our work together, we're going to talk. I'm going to ask you about your philosophy and your work. I want to see your tapes. I want you to begin taping work. I want you to talk to your, your couples or your relationships about beginning to tape the work. And I want you to share with them, this is actually for you. This is about protecting you from my unseen biases. And I've never had a supervisee have a relationship refuse to do that. Because then, you know, the relationship in the room gets to say, so what happened in supervision? What did they say? It's like, oh, you know what? I think I dropped the ball here. And they're like, yeah, we were going to bring that up. I'm really glad that you <laughs> saw that. Or, you know, or it's like, geez, you just got you just got this, this observation that I don't think we thought about. Man, that makes sense. So it's really a way to bring multiple therapists into the room while also letting the client get the best service they can get while actually teaching the clinician how best to be accountable to themselves, to their practice, but most importantly, to the relationship in the room. So what I've heard you say is that 
future clients of relationship therapy should be challenging their clinicians to ask them to acknowledge what might be a weak spot for you, what might be something that you have a little bit of difficulty with yourself, not so that we can call you out, just be so that we are actually not only having a real relationship, because it's all of us having this relationship, but also what are some areas that maybe I can help educate you, not that I should have to educate you, but educate you on what my needs are. And if that's something that's a blind spot for you or an area that you think that you struggle with, maybe we need to have a conversation now because this is not about your ego. This is about us having a good experience in therapy. Dana, that's that's the part right there. When I meet with a couple or a relationship, because I work with non-consensual uh, because I work with consensual non-monogamy, and unfortunately, I also work with folks who've really suffered both parties from non-consensual non-monogamy. When I meet with a couple, I work for 90 minutes, all right, and I will interview them, I will ask them questions, I ask them to ask me questions, I will ask them to share with me their concerns. Um, we talk about sex right from the beginning. Listen, I'm, I'm going to ask you about how you masturbate. I'm going to ask you about the porn you watch. I'm going to ask if there are um, any sexual practices that you're uncomfortable bringing to me for fear that I might not know what they are. So after the 90 minutes, what I usually say to a, a couple is don't make another appointment with me because that's non-consensual. I want the two of you to talk about whether or not you want to work with me whether or not you want to come back. And that's the first piece of homework. Do we want to connect with this guy or are we settling for someone because we're turning our power over to someone else because that's what we've been taught therapy is. And oftentimes when I ask relationships or partners to do that, they look at me like I have eight heads. They're like, wait, I have a voice in this? That's essentially the translation. And then I ask them, it's like, so what was the conversation about why you wanted to, to come back? And they were like, a, because you provided a roadmap. B, you provided psychoeducation. C, you let us know that we're going to be okay in you know, your hands. D, because you said, I'm going to confront you and I expect that you confront me. So if I'm seeing you do something in the room that's harmful to yourself, to the goals that you set up with me, or if I see you you know, doing things where you're shutting down because you're stonewalling, not necessarily because you're holding all the power, but because you don't know where to move, or if I see you engaged in, you know, normative marital sadism, I'm going to bring that in the room and I'm going to talk to you about that. And I expect that you feel that you can do that with me too, because if we're not working in relationship, what are we doing? You might also be able to tell that I did family therapy wall to wall for years. So, and couples therapy grows out of family work. So this is important to me. This is about being accountable. This is about letting people know our, our clients that you have power, you have voice. And unfortunately, we live in a system that is predicated on the suppression of power and autonomy. Yeah. And our job, again, the political is you know, clinical. Many of the folks we work with have been abused, sexually abused or abusing substances because they've never had voice. And if we can begin to model what a real relationship looks like, we're all of your magnificence and even those places where you might be a jerk can come into the room and be held and respected. Then we're actually undoing the damage that this culture does to all of us. I love that. Yes, you're very much resonating with my view on 
how we introduce ourselves to a couple and what we give them as an expectation in their space and modeling for them what healthy connection and communication and respect looks like. So uh, see why I love you. Okay, so I'm going to go back to let's shift gears. So because there's, I literally I can just keep pulling things out of your bio to talk about. So there may be people that are listening to this that heard this phrase skills of scene negotiation when you're referencing BDSM and kink. And they're like, Dana Joe, what are you talking about? Tell me about that. I don't know what that is. What is that? Okay. So let's set up the parameter first. We'll talk about scene negotiation and its application to relational therapy in a moment. Um, Scenes come from BDSM and kink. So we're going to talk about that. BDSM stands for bondage, discipline, dominant submission, um, sadism and masochism. All right. These are forms of consensual exploration of the body and neural net pathways to create deeper relationship with folks and to use pleasure and pain to build on erotic charge, which may or may not include sex. Boom, complex. Even in that simplified version, I know that- great. You did a great job on that. You totally like got that. It's part of the work, right? (laughs) So, and um, kink can be anything from a role-playing game. So, All BDSM is kink, not all kink is BDSM. It's important to keep that in mind. And uh, BDSM and kink, they're just huge, huge worlds of umbrellas, umbrella terms of it's like the plus at the end of the uh, A. (laughs) Yes, yes, yes. So, one of the things that happens, and again, this is again broad stroke. Yeah. um, For folks who are involved with BDSM and kink, Oftentimes what happens is they will talk to their partners about negotiating a scene. A scene is a place where it might be in a dungeon with other people. It might be in a bedroom where you're exploring spanking and restraint. And it's like, no, no, don't take me. Don't. That's horrible. No, no. Keep going. Keep going. Right. So it's a way to play sexually and erotically. And one of the things that often happens is in a scene is that people talk about safety, consent, Um, They talk about risk management. They talk about what they want from that encounter. And then afterwards, they engage in something called aftercare. Because these scenes have a tendency to change consciousness and the experience of sexuality, time, space, so on and so forth, what happens during a scene is that everything's negotiated, people agree, and there was an agreement on what the end is going to be, and there are also safe words. Um, a good safe word should never be stop or don't because that should be woven into the scene. It can get confused. and It can get confusing. Yeah. So a good safe word is like fire truck. It's like, yep, there's no reason. Something for that wouldn't usually come up in your conversation. It doesn't have like exactly. a meaning to you. It's, it's an outlier. Exactly. So one of the things that we found and that I found is that and Laurie Brado actually did this work. Laurie Brado was a sex researcher and couples therapist. And um, I think Laurie's in Canada. And one of the things that she found along with um, one of her colleagues was that the specificity with which scenes are negotiated around safe, sane, and consensual behavior, risk-aware, consensual kink, the conversation, the agreement of what will happen, what won't happen, was so precise and so focused on consent, again, broad strokes, that she has recommended 
and I concur that working with couples on how to negotiate day-to-day life using these principles around consent and what you agree to, what you don't agree to, can actually be a great tool, not just for sex education, but for relational education. Hey, Mark, I saw that you took $500 and you went and you paid off your bike. Um, And I know that you're going to put that money back because you said you are. But the $500 that you used to pay for your bike, you didn't ask Tommy about. So there was really no consent there. And I'm just curious, do you see how that lack of consent can lead to rupture? Now we have to look at repair. And it's like, Jesus, Joe, that wasn't my intent. And it's like, what? Tommy, do you want to jump in? It's like, Mark, honey, I know it wasn't your intent, but we're talking about the impact of your action. Had you discussed that with me, I would have been fine. But one of the things in our relationship is we don't talk. And this is one of those moments that we missed. So from the Gottman method, it's about making a bid. All right. From the perspective of differentiation, it's about being able to step more fully into risk taking. Hey, Tommy, honey, I'd really like to get my bike because I want to go for a bike ride tomorrow. Can I take $500 from my shared account? Absolutely, honey. No problem. When will you get it back in? I'll get it back in on Friday. So that's what we mean by negotiating a scene and how it's applicable to relational therapy. Does that make sense, Dana? Of course it does. And, and how does that relate then the extra layer of it bringing healing to an individual, right? That it corrects situations that have happened in the past that you haven't felt like you had power. You're getting to reenact a scene maybe where you have more power than you've ever had before and you're correcting a wrong. That's right. That's right. All relationships are based on power exchange, all relationships. And that's essentially what BDSM and kink is. I choose to give you this power you choose to provide me with this in exchange for we both get something the same thing applies in relationships and if you want to take a look at the importance of attachment a corrective emotional experience through what a two-minute conversation really makes a relationship shine because it's about trust Oh my God, I'm loving this. And I, I know I'm stealing a bunch of your time. So is there something that you want to make sure we chat about today that you want to educate or to bring an aha moment to or turn on a light bulb for somebody who's listening? Sure. You know, to the folks that are in the audience that are considering um, relational or couples therapy, there are several things that I want to say. Make sure the people that you're going to are trained and make sure they're supervised. And ask them about what model or models are you trained in. Dana, you know, I mean, if you went to the couples conference, you know, as well as I do. I mean, I love Gottman. I love Ellen's model. You know, I'm trained in a half a dozen different models of couples therapy. But it's okay for you as the client to ask, what models are you trained in? What do you know about racism? What do you know about feminism? What do you know about queer folk? All right. Um, is are your religious views different from mine? And is that going to be an issue? What are your values? Why do you do this work? What's important about this work to you? So it's okay to grill us. All right. And how the therapist responds is very telling for you about what if you're in the right couch. Absolutely. 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 If a therapist answers your questions within reason, it's like, so where do you vacation? It's like, wow, I'm really glad that you're interested in my worldview. <laughs> but I don't think that's relevant right, to right, this. Right, right. Let's talk about sex in your relationship, right? Right. Yeah. I think I- that 
how people respond. And if someone responds positively and then follows up with, what other questions or curiosities do you have about the potential of us working together? That person from first blush might be a keeper. I love that because what you've done now is you've, first of all, given per- permission to someone who might be intimidated by our position, right? Sure. Like you said, there's a power differential. I, and sometimes we as therapists forget to tell the truth to anybody who's listening. We're just rolling in there, sitting down on the couch. And if sometimes we forget that it's terrifying to walk up the flight of stairs and come in an office where you've never been before and have a complete stranger say, tell me about how you guys negotiate your budget. Oh, you don't have one. You um, tell me about your sex life. I know I've just met you five minutes ago. And if we are not giving you that grace of giving you some information about who we are, not in an unhealthy, not organized boundary kind of way, then we're not respecting your experience. Exactly. The other thing is for the clinicians that are listening, if you're not in psychotherapy, mm. get into psychotherapy. Preach. Thank you. I mean, the bottom line is we hear some shit that we can't share with other folks. And it's not, it's really damaging to just be. I often tell folks that a big part of our job is to be a filtration organ. All right. So that we end up collecting a lot of the toxicity that we want people to remove from their relationship. And it brings up stuff for us. And if we don't have a therapist to process that with, we we can get into a lot of trouble. So that's what I would say. The other thing that I would say is if you're afraid, let's back up. If you're in a situation where you were legitimately afraid for your well-being, the well-being of your pets, your children, your loved ones, um, get in contact with domestic violence shelters and programs. And, and get in touch with folks who can help you that when you make the decision and only you can make that decision. And whenever you make that decision is a-okay. If you decide to stay, that's a-okay. But should you decide to leave a situation where you're not being treated well or physically abused or manipulated, couples therapy is, is not for you, all right? You can't go to couples therapy to work on domestic violence. You can go to couples therapy if you're arguing and there have been instances, maybe one or two, where you've pushed or shoved. Julie Gottman talks about this. Situational domestic violence is different from character or logical. And Dana, you can fill folks in on that. So that's one thing. If you're unsafe and you're at risk, it's okay to invest in self-preservation. Lastly, if you're afraid though, to bring confrontation into the relationship, like what if I hurt his feelings or her feelings or their feelings? What if, what if this makes us argue more? What that tells me is that these are exactly the moments that you want to get into couples therapy because the person you're with more often than not is telling themselves the same story. So you're relating to, to a construct in your head rather than your partner, a good relational therapist, a well-trained relational therapist will walk you through that mishigas, will walk you through that fear. And you might be surprised that the person you're talking to has really missed you. Awesome. I told you, Joe, I'm a total fangirl. So I'm having a a great moment. All right. So my last question because I could keep you here all day, you could regret saying yes. Um, One of the things I like to just check in with, because I'm still gathering this, and I think it's a fun question. What is your definition of commitment? What is my definition of commitment? The first thing that I want to say is my definition of commitment might not be someone else's definition of commitment. 
Um, what is commitment? Commitment is when two or more adults, and what I mean by adults are people who can get together, who know how to risk, who know how to fight fear, who know how to not collapse in on themselves when they're confronted with their own shit and know how to be compassionate when they're confronting their partner's shit um, and are able to hang in there. And even when you don't like each other very much, you're still able to say, my life is better with you than without you. Mm. That doesn't mean right now that I want to talk to you. But what it does mean <laughs> is I love you and I want to continue building something with you. And give me 20 minutes and we can come back and work this out. To me, commitment is about creating a vision every single day about what you want your life to look like with this person, whether you're in a... Uh, a polyamorous relationship, a consensually non-monogamous relationship. It's about respect, decency, honesty, courage, vulnerability, and humor. You have to laugh. You have to be able to laugh at your own shit and the situations that come in. And you also have to be able periodically to say, honey, I love you. We're not going to see eye to eye, but I want to hear where you're coming from. Mm. That to me is commitment. I, I wholeheartedly agree. Wonderful. Okay. How would they reach out to you? Well, one of the things that folks can do is you can reach me um, on my website, which is josephwynlicsw.net. You can reach out to me via email at josephwynlicsw, um, josephwynlicsw at hotmail.com. Mm -hmm. um, I know I'm a dinosaur. I love You're that. You're good. You're good. And or you could reach me on my um, business phone, which is 617-461-8479. Let me repeat it again, because sometimes the accent throws folks off. 617-461-8479. <laughs> and we'll put all this information in the show notes, too. And I think you have some YouTube stuff that maybe people might be able to watch. At least I found you there. So there might be. Some I, I might. I don't know. Right? <laughs> oh, you can also, if you're interested, you'd also go to the Erickson Institute and see some of my professional lectures. Um, and the reason that I recommend that to the lay audience as well is so that if you decide to work with me, you can sort of get a sense of, of what to expect. Yeah, great. And you will like what you see, I guarantee it. So thank yeah. you, thank you, thank you, Joe. This has been um, a big dream of mine to get to like check in with you and you have been delightful and as wonderful as I assumed that you would be. So thank you so much for sharing your wisdom and kindness with my audience. Thanks, Dana. I've really enjoyed it. Very good. Take good care of yourself. You too, buddy. Bye-bye. This has been the D-Spot Podcast with Dr. Dana McNeil. To learn more about Dr. Dana's practice, simply visit us at www.danamcneil.com.